Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. Welcome everybody to tonight's nice and intimate evening service. And yes, if you were wondering, there is special brownie points in school holidays coming to the evening service in a kind of strange weekend with a lot of rain and a lazy feeling. There is reward for that in heaven one day. Thanks for the faithfulness and the endurance. But before I say too much, let me pray for us and then we jump in to tonight's sermon. Yes, Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. And thank you, Lord, that we can come with an expectation, Father, to meet with you tonight. To experience something of you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that by your grace, Holy Spirit, by your power, we might move, Lord, past information. Just hearing about you, Lord, but experiencing something practically of you, Father. And thank you, Lord, that we know that that happens as we step out in obedience, Lord. Many of us, Lord, have heard many mighty things, Lord, about how you've worked in people's lives and used them for great things, Lord. And some of us long for that same experiences, Father. And thank you, Lord, that we can know, Lord, that that will never happen unless we move, Lord, unless we begin to follow, unless we jump and trust you to experience your goodness, Lord. And thank you, Father, that you give us grace, Lord, and you enable us to move, Lord, to follow, to obey. And thank you, Jesus, for your perfect example in every area of life. And I pray, Lord, for tonight, Lord, every heart that feels overwhelmed, Lord, by something that they feel they need to do, Lord, or lay down. Thank you, Father, that you call us, Father, to the things that you've already set the example in, Lord. Jesus, you already laid down your life. Perfect obedience, submission to the Father. Because you love us, Lord. And out of love for you, Father, may we do the same. In Jesus' name, amen. So our title for tonight is Sanctification and Obedience. Yes, obedience. Favorite topics, everybody loves it. We've been busy with the last while. And we're going to continue with it. But sanctification and obedience. And I want to kind of build on the last two sermons that we had. Renier started off two weeks ago speaking about obedience and faith. Or faith and deeds. Same thing. The good things, the good works that should flow from our lives out of faith. And he made the statement that these two things are inseparable from one another. You do not get obedience and faith apart from one another. The one inevitably leads to the other. And we see this in life. Everything that we do in life flows out of what we truly believe. Kind of like an iceberg in the water. Underneath the water you have belief and convictions and above the water you have actions. What we truly believe will impact all of our life. We live our lives according to what we believe. And Renier made the statement, you know, that saying that we believe in Jesus, that then should be evident in the way we live our lives. If we say we have come to meet Christ initially, then there should have been a change initially when we came to meet Christ. When we surrendered to Him, when we placed our faith in Him, there should have been a change. 
something happening, a different deed, a different way of life flowing from that. Perfect, no. But changed, yes. Because we believe something different. Change of life should have happened. And we saw this so beautifully in John 3, 36. The scripture is saying that for those who believe in the Son, they have eternal life. But those who disobey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on them. And scripture is saying exactly the same thing. It doesn't say who believes in the Son and who does not believe, but he who believes and he who disobeys. Saying that belief inevitably leads to obedience. And disbelief leads to disobedience. That's what happens. So inevitably when we follow Jesus, these good things and good deeds and works of obedience should flow from our lives. But like we said last week, it's easy to hear something like that and kind of look into our own lives and see, but hey, there's not a lot of that going on. Or not a lot of that consistently going on. Kind of experience these ups and downs, these stints, this feeling of now I'm going to do it and it doesn't last long. And every now and again I find myself in the same place, stuck with the same sin, doing the same things that I know I shouldn't do. And it's easy to look at that and then all of a sudden start again with that cycle, cycle of dead works. The average Christian falls between these two spheres constantly. Passivity, either just sitting and, and doing nothing or whops to the other side, running and doing a lot of dead works, trying hard to show God that we have what it takes because scripture says, you know, if I believe then these good things should flow from my life. Instead of kind of going to the root of it, and asking why is there no sustainability? Why do I constantly struggle with the same thing? Like the one guy so beautifully says, for thousand striking at the fruit of sin, there's but one striking at the root. Really going deeper, seeing why this bad apple continues to grow. And last week we looked at works of faith and the heart. What should actually our heart be regarding this good works that we do? Because we know the Bible says it's not only about what we do, but about why we do what we do. Two people can do exactly the same thing and for the one God would say, man, I'm pleased with that. And to the other one, God says, I don't accept that. But it's the exact same thing. But it's because the motives are different. The one is trying to earn his salvation or show God how good he is, while the other one is doing that because he's already saved, showing God how much he loves and appreciates the work that God's already done. And like we saw last week, one thing that we should realize when it comes to works of faith, that without Jesus' work on the cross, everything we do is meaningless. Every good deed, every good work, every act of love, meaningless. If it's not for Jesus. Weight on the scale, it weighs nothing. As the one song of Ombuscom so beautifully says, bring your dirty, empty hands. We don't only have empty hands, but they are dirty as well. And God needs to come and wash them. And like we said, it's only when we actually realize that, that we actually can receive salvation. Because we cannot receive something free and pay for it at the same time. And many times we're unable to receive what Jesus has done for us on the cross because we're trying to buy what he gave. We're trying to do good things so that he can give that to us. But it's not how it works. We'll never have enough. We have to receive it for free. But only when we acknowledge how much we need it can we actually receive it. And we actually looked at the aim of our good deeds, why we do what we do. And it's not to get to heaven one day, but it's to know God now. And how do we know if we want to know God 
one day in heaven. How do we know our aim is not just to be at that place where there's no more sickness and death? I mean, everybody wants to go there where the streets are paved of gold. No more sickness, no more death. Everybody wants to go there. But how do we know we just don't want to go there? We want to actually be with God. It's about how we actually seek Him now because we can know Him now and experience Him now and walk in relationship with Him now. And if we do not do it now, we won't do it then. Amen? Difficult truth, but truth nonetheless. So the aim of our good works, the reason why we are here tonight is hopefully to know God, to know Jesus and to become like Him. And lastly, we said that the good things that we do, we do so out of a place of acceptance, not for acceptance. The statement goes that we press on to make it our own like Paul because Jesus has already made us His own. That's why. Because He has already made us His own. Not so that He can make us His own. Not so that He can be pleased with us, but because He already is and because He already loves us. We are already justified before God. That's the reason we do these good deeds. Now, tonight I want to focus a little bit about sanctification and obedience, the other part of good works. How does this work? Because we should constantly grow. And although there's an immediate great change when we come to meet Christ, it's not a perfect change. We still struggle with stuff. We still need to grow in a lot of areas. And that will be true until Jesus comes back. And sanctification many times complicates stuff because it sounds complicated. Specifically in Afrikaans, heilig maken. Wanneer voel jy heilig? When do you feel holy? Well, how do you become holy? Because that's the question of sanctification. But maybe just to ask it in a different way, simply how do we become what God intends us to be? How do we get there? How do we become what God wants us to be? How do we do what God wants us to do? How does that process look like? You see, and we many times struggle with that. and We don't quite get there because we understand sanctification and obedience the other way around. I don't know if you've ever said the following thing. We hear something that God calls us towards. You know, there's making disciples, there's praying for the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, all of those weird and wonderful things. And many times when we hear one of those things, we might have said the following, I'm not ready for that yet. I don't know if you've ever in your Christian life said something like that. I don't feel quite ready yet. I don't know if I'm there yet. Or maybe something like, God won't use me for that. It's the exact same thing, it just sounds a little bit nicer. Instead of, I'm not ready, I am actually ready, it's just that God won't use me for that with me oh God won't use me for that have we ever said stuff like that and the moment we say that or the moment we say we are not ready yet we are actually saying that sanctification leads to greater obedience in other words something is going to happen while I sit somewhere waiting for obedience and it's just going to transform me and then I'm going to go and it just seems to never happen Because many times those things that we struggle with or those areas that we struggle to step out in obedience with, they are the same thing year after year. And we heard that sermon about evangelism last year and we thought, man, okay, I'm not ready yet. I'll do it one day when I'm ready. And the next year the sermon on evangelism came and I'm not ready yet. Maybe next year. 
Well, that topic came up to lead a small group and we're not ready yet to facilitate the group, to pray for someone that's sick, whatever the case might be. And we're not ready yet. And it constantly just seems that we continue to not be ready yet. How does it work? How do we grow towards that place to be ready? And we're going to look at that tonight. And the one thing has to do with faith, obviously faith in God, what we believe. There's twofold things that we should believe when it comes to God, that God can do something through us. That's very important. Obviously, he's God, so that implies that he can. I don't know if you know that. But the other part that we sometimes don't say, but we actually believe that God is unwilling. Understand that God can use many people to do many things, but I don't know if he wants to use me. I don't know if he loves me. I don't know if he's willing to use me. He's able, but I don't know if he's willing. So we need to understand and believe that God is both willing and able. And then secondly, there's something that we need to do as well, because in this process of sanctification, unfortunately, we are not called to be passive, but we play an active role when it comes to God forming and shaping us to be more like Jesus. And we're going to look at a passage of scripture that we have already looked at as a church a couple of years ago, but it's just a beautiful illustration about how this process works, and we can identify with it if we are honest with ourselves. Because we many times do the same and act the same way as the person in the story. And it's the story of Gideon, found in Judges 6, verse 11 to 27. And at this place in context, the Ammonites and the Moabites are busy besieging Israel. And whenever they plant crops, whenever they do something, these people just come in, ravage the land. So they are busy hiding away all of Israel, caves, dens, wherever they can find themselves because they are being oppressed by these people. And the story goes on in verse 11, and it says the following. Just after Israel cried out to God to come and deliver them. And it says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belongs to Joas the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you. O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. That's about 16 kilograms of flour. So basically what's going on here is just a lot of procrastination. It's basically what Gideon is busy doing, an ancient way of procrastinating. Okay, Lord, I hear you want to do something for me, but I'm quickly going to go prepare a young goat. They didn't have freezers back then. 
So je tent one had to catch the thing, skin the thing, prepare the thing, and then bake a cake of 16 kilograms of flour. So a whole lot of procrastination going on here. And then we read, the meat he put in a basket, and the broth he put in a pot, and brought them to him under the terabith, and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes, and put them on this rock, and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand, and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And a fire sprang up from the rock, and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Oprah, which belongs to the Abyssalites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar to Baal that, has your father's, that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Interesting story. And like I say, if we are honest with ourselves, we can identify with Gideon here in a lot of ways. A lot of ways in which God came to spoke to him and a lot of ways that he responded to God. And the thing that we should ask, same as in our own life, is how does Gideon end up going from here to someone hiding in this wine press, to someone giving all of these excuses and justification, to this guy kind of procrastinating when it comes to obedience. How does that man turn into the same guy that took 300 to defeat thousands? To the same man that at the end of Gideon's story, the Israelites actually say, Gideon and his household must rule over us forever. Man, if we want to select a king, it must be this guy. How does that happen? What happened in between? In a lot of places in scripture we see the same. Moses doubting and then he becomes this great prophet that leads out the Israelites. Full of flaws, yes, but fruitful, yes. Peter, the same. From denying Christ to being crucified for Christ. How does that happen? What happened in between? How does this process of sanctification work? What needs to take place in our life? And like I say, Faith that we need to have, an understanding that we need to have about who God is. But there's also an action point from our side. But the story begins here in verse 11 and 12. And we read, While his son Gideon was beating wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor, while he's busy hiding away. And we can kind of pick up why Gideon first gave these excuses. He obviously didn't know it was God. He only figured that out later. But can you imagine, you know, a hint of sarcasm maybe Gideon thought to himself. 
Because you can imagine, imagine you are hiding away somewhere out of fear doing something and someone comes walking past and says, hey, mighty man of valor. You're going to thought, ach, come now, guy, everybody's hiding. Why do you need to come and pick on me now? Everybody's in caves and dens, but here you come to me. But an interesting story that we read, and there's two things, firstly, that we have to realize in this story, because this is many times where we find ourselves when God comes and calls us. Also busy hiding away from something. And the one thing is that we need to realize is that we are either stepping out in obedience or we are also hiding away in fear. And at least in a sense, Gideon knew who the enemy was. He knew it was the Moabites. He could give it a name. He knows those people. He knows where they are coming from. I'm hiding from them. And many times we also need to answer the question, but what are we hiding from? What step of obedience, what thing that God is calling us to do are we also hiding from? And why are we fearful? And many times and in many situations, it's the fear of man, what people will think or how people will act when I actually do what God has called me to do. Still fear of man. And maybe just to give us a minute there where you said, what is that thing that you are maybe procrastinating about or that you still find fearful that God is calling you to do? Maybe it's repentance. Maybe it's restitution. Like I said this morning as well, the moment we become Christians, yes, God forgives us of our sin, but that sin still has consequences that we need to deal with many times. If there was broken relationships and hurt, then we need to make an effort to restore that. If we wronged people, lied to people, stole from people maybe, we need to go and make restitution. We need to actually go to them and say, hey, this is what I did, and I want to apologize for that. That's uncomfortable, but it's necessary. It's what God calls us to do. still needs to happen, still needs to forgive, restore, still need to go and make restitution. Maybe husbands and wives, I don't know, or in a relationship, something that you need to say or bring into the light. And we're fearful. We know this is what we should do, but we're struggling to kind of get there. But at least we know what it is that we should do. Maybe it's evangelism for some of us. Already know that person at work, or maybe in our families, that we should reach, we should share the gospel with. Maybe we've experienced that moments at work where you stand there and the opportunity is there and you know it's kind of like, you know, God set this up. I know this is why I should start speaking. And then we don't. And then as we drive away, that moment plays off in our heads. Man, I should have said something. Should have prayed, should have, should have acted. And the opportunity again presents itself and again we don't act. Maybe it's going to address someone about something that's wrong in their lives. Who knows what it is? But what is it? We need to know that. And the second thing that we should realize according to this passage is that God does not call us according to our ability. This is many times something that we understand wrong. Specifically in a charismatic movement. We like speaking about gifts and how God enables and empowers us. And yes, those things are so. God has given us gifts. Yes, God enables. Yes, God has given us certain passions to do certain things. But God doesn't wait until we fully master or develop those things and then He starts to use us. 
He's the one that enables us to do what he's called us to do. Not according to our ability. Because you can imagine if each and every one of us were called according to our ability or if the whole church movement and growth depended on our ability. Shucks. We're in trouble. But we many times understand that in the wrong way. God will never come and tempt us or He will never come and test us or try and use us for something that we are not able every time. I mean, have you even thought about what we are called to do as Christians? To go and make disciples of all nations. That's an impossible calling. I don't know if you've ever thought about it just practically. But Scripture says in Romans 8, that the mind that is set on the flesh is death. The mind that is set on the spirit is life and peace. But the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards, God's, towards God. It cannot submit to God's law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those are the people that we are called to reach. So God says, while their mind is set in the flesh, they are hostile towards God. They're not neutral. They're unable to please God. and They're unable to submit to God's law. So go and tell them the gospel. <sighs> We're just like, that's difficult. And then we read in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3 that nobody can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. In other words, God needs to save people, but He calls us to go and make disciples. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. It's impossible. We cannot make a disciple. We cannot convince someone to follow Christ. So even in that most practical calling, God is calling us to do something that unless He does it through us, it won't happen. Even just praying right, through the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus, to the Father, even that is enabled by God. But many times we forget how much we need God because we get used to certain things. But everything that God calls us to, we are unable to do ourselves. He needs to come and do it through us. And many times when God comes, we kind of react in the same way that Gideon does. He, we read it here in verse 14 and 15. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. How can I save Israel? I'm too weak, my clan's too little. Isn't there someone that's more suited for the task? That knows a little bit more than I do? That comes from a greater family that has more influence? How many times do we feel like that? And we many times say, no, God calls those people, He'll call someone else to do that. We're actually saying the same thing, just in other words. And also something that's so beautiful here is God that says, go in this might of yours and save Israel. God calling something out of Gideon that he didn't even know was there. I, I don't see that. And many times we need God also to come through the body of Christ and call out those things that we don't even see in ourselves. Now this morning as I was busy preparing and praying through the sermon, I thought about something that Hendrik said, Hendrik Retief. And as I was thinking about him, I actually thought that he was in Panama somewhere and he actually rocked up at the service this morning, which was interesting, but a side note. But I already said it, so nonetheless. So Hendrik said many years ago that if the enemy 
cannot get you to do bad stuff, you know, inherently evil things and just go off on a side quest. He will let you focus on the other things as long as he can just keep you from not doing what you're supposed to do. You can be busy with a lot of good stuff as long as it's not the one thing that God has called you to do. And many times we actually see that in church. Someone going to someone and say, I actually see this in your life or I see this gift or, or you're acting in this way or God can use you there. And obviously us humble Christians, I really never know. And we struggle with that. But many times need people to come and actually say, hey, I see this thing in your life. I see this gift that God has called out in you. Same thing that God did with Gideon here. But we respond the same way. No, Lord, I'm too weak. And the funny thing is, Gideon isn't lying. It's true. He isn't able. Because it doesn't depend on our ability. God is the one that strengthens and enables us to do what He's called us to do. Why? So that it can be clear that it is God that is working. God says, in our weakness, His power manifests most. So that He can receive the glory. Even with the 300, a thousand guys pitched up at the beginning to go to battle. And God actually said to Gideon, these are too many men. I'm not going to save you. I'm not going to lead them into battle and save you by this many men, lest you think your own hand has saved you. I want to do it with 300 against 1,000 so that you can know that it is God who delivered. That it is God who redeemed. It is God who saved. God says he uses the weak to lead the strong. He uses the foolish things to shame the wise. That's how God works. He doesn't call us according to our ability and we should understand that. Right through scripture we see that Moses says he cannot speak. To Joshua God continuously has to say be strong and courageous. Why? Not because he knew that. But because he needed that and he constantly forgot. And he needed that encouragement. Jeremiah, no Lord I'm too young. Peter, Lord I'm a sinful man depart from me. Nobody that is called by God thinks, wow, God, that's right up my alley. Man, wow. To raise the dead and cast out demons. Yes. Stuff like that. Nobody goes, yes, yes, I've been waiting for this. No. We feel that we are unable. And rightly so. And one of the beautiful things that we see in this passage is now we have to ask, okay, but what happened? How did he go from that man that says no too weak, too little, not important Lord, to the man that defeats thousands? And we read here in verse 27, and it's not pretty, and it's not all there, and there's fear in there, and there's a little bit of unfaithfulness in there, but it's there, and that is what counts. And we read the following. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. But he did it. He did it nonetheless. He didn't sit there and wait until he felt like it or until he felt able, until God came and took away all the fear and gave him all the information and all the knowledge and all the strength. He did it. He stepped out in obedience. And yes, he didn't do it by day, he did it by night, but he took that first step. And that is how sanctification works. God forms us as we follow him. 
It's as we step out. It's as we trust, as we jump, as we begin to speak, that God forms us. But passivity, even, you know, if you just say it like that, passivity will never lead to sanctification. That makes sense. But yet we sometimes think that way. We need to begin to move. That is how God forms us. And that takes us to point number one. Matthew Matthew 4 verse 19 actually says the, the same thing, just in a little bit different words before we go to point number one. It says, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is Jesus calling the disciples. The exact same thing. Follow me. You start to walk. You start to follow. And I will make you. He didn't tell them, hey guys, in a couple of years, three years, I'm going to do this ministry thing that I'm going to come back and I'm going to need a couple of guys that can plant churches and read men, speak well, you know, maybe work on that a little bit and I'm coming back after three years and then I'll see if you kind of have it sorted out and then if you fit the bill, then we're going to move. No. Don't make yourself a fisher of men and then I will use you. Just follow, just start to move and I will make you. I will form, I will shape. That takes us to point number one. Sanctification and obedience. God shapes us as we follow him in obedience. It's point number one of nine tonight. Just making a joke. Still caught it quick. Actually this morning I saw Pierre sitting there in the corner and he says, you know, whenever the Dwemini or the pastor has a sermon and they say that this is point number one off. I'm going to make four points. If he sees how long that first point takes so that he at least knows how long we're going to be here. Just, just point one of four. Again, just making a joke. Only two points for tonight. But God shapes us as we follow him in obedience. There's this beautiful verse in 1 Peter 1 verse 21 and it says, through your obedience to the truth, you've sanctified yourselves or purified yourselves through your obedience to the truth. That's how. That's how it works. That's how sanctification works. God working with us. Who enables the obedience? God does. Who leads us and prompts us to be obedient? God does. He always works first. He always works most. But inevitably, we work with God in this process of sanctification. As we walk, as we move, God comes and forms us. And he enables us. So beautifully for me in Acts 1, when Jesus speaks to the disciples just before he ascends into heaven, he tells them what? I'm going away now. I'm going to the Father. The Holy Spirit's only going to be poured out a while from now. So what do you do? You go and wait in a room. Don't try to do what I've called you to do. You do not have it what it takes. You're not able on your own. Wait for the gift of the Father. Wait for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. Because unless I'm with you, unless I enable you, you will not be able to do what God has called you to do. But we need to step out in obedience. Whatever that might be. I remember Smith Wigglesworth actually said, one guy came up to him and said, how have you raised so many dead people? He said, well, if you've prayed for as many dead people as I have, some of them also would have been raised. We need to begin to move. And for some of us, we might see in Scripture, you know, this wonderful things that God does and He heals people and He sets them free. And we're like, Lord, we also want to see that here now. We also want to experience that. How? Start to obey. 
pray for sick people. We many times don't even pray for our kids when they're sick. And why, do, why don't we many times pray for the sick? How will we look if they are not healed? What will they think? Scripture says we are supposed to be crucified with Christ. For dead people, we care a lot about what people think, huh? Dead people are not supposed to care what people think. We're supposed to lay that down and follow God in obedience. That reminds me of this one guy. We were busy ministering at Westerland. And they said there was a guest speaker coming. I think I've told the story before. But as I entered the school, someone came walking out. And as they came walking out, just their body language, the way they shied away, looked down, kind of greeted very softly, I thought to myself, wow, I've never seen a more shy guy in my life. Super introvert, just everything of him, shying away from just looking at someone or just greeting. I thought, wow, that's a shy person. And as we entered the wall and waiting for the person to come and speak, yeah, this guy comes back. He's the person speaking. I thought, wow, that's amazing. And he spoke about evangelism. And he said, God came and saved him, and the day God saved him, he had this burning passion to tell people about Jesus. The guy's called Jan Labaskanya. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. But he had this burning passion to tell people about Jesus. And he said, for weeks, he went out into town and on the streets, and he had little pamphlets with him that he wanted to go out, but he just couldn't give it to someone. He just couldn't start to speak. It was just so intimidating. And for weeks he just went out and came back and nothing happened. Until that first day came when he handed out the first pamphlet and started to speak for the first time. And it just grew from then. He's actually appointed by a church and he's a full-time evangelist. That's the only thing he does. He's going to strange places and speak to strange people. And if he can do that, then we can as well. Like C.H. Persian says, God can hit straight lines with crooked sticks. Because that's what he does with us. Perfect God using imperfect people to do perfect things. Because it's God who enables. Amen. And also we need to ask ourselves, you know, what is the first place of obedience? What's the first thing that we will have to do? Because it's the same as in Gideon's life. It's not to go to war first. It's not to go and do the big thing first, you know, the seeming visible public thing first. It's to go and tear down the altar to the false God first. And also for us, that's the first step of obedience, to go and tear down the altar to the things that is keeping us away from God. And in our time and in our context, what's the most prominent one? Baal. Was it Gideon's God that he needed to go and tear down? What's ours? Ammon. Money, possessions, entertainment. Mammon. Because that's what money gives us. That's what entertainment gives us. And for many of us, the Netflix, the series, the TV, take the TV off the wall. Throw it away. Throw it away. Cancel the DSTV. Cancel the Netflix. Cancel the things that's keeping us away from God. And if you were the person tonight thinking, wow, that's maybe a little bit extreme, then you are exactly the person that needs to do that. Whenever we hear something like that, if we are the one that thinks, man, but a bit, bit extreme, then we are the ones that need to do that. Because we are the ones that have an issue with that thing. Are you with me? And like I said this morning as well, I'm not saying that the TV is from the devil and that he created the thing. 
or DSTV or Netflix or all of that, if it's keeping us from God, if it's stealing our devotion, tear that thing down. Tear that thing down. Are you with me? And for some of us, it might be some other things. But inevitably, we need to go and tear down the altar, the things that's keeping us away from God and build that altar to God, to be devoted to God, to spend time with God and worship God. And out of that place, we will move. But what do we need to understand for us to go and tear down the altar? Because many times why we worship these false things and why we struggle to obey. Because we do not realize that God is both able and willing to use, to save, to sanctify. That's the part of faith. Like we said, obedience leads to sanctification, but faith leads to obedience. And we need to understand that God is both able and willing. Because look at what Gideon says to God. And many times we kind of feel the same way. In verse 13 and 17, it says, And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Gideon doesn't believe that God is truly with them, that God is truly for them. I don't know if God is willing to be with us, to use us. And the kind of interesting thing in the story is that they are in this situation because they are worshiping false gods. And if we need to answer that question, why then has all this happened to us? What's the answer? Because God loves you. Why are you being oppressed by Midian? Because God loves you. Why are foreign countries coming to steal your crops because God loves you. How is that God's love? Because if that does not happen, you do not return to God. Again and again. They start worshipping false idols and God out of love sends a nation to come and oppress them so that they can call out to God again. Lord, why is this happening? Because I love you. And unless the storm comes, you seem to not cry out. And unless you cry out, You will not be saved. Are you with me? Lord, why? Because I love you. And again, God says, I am with you. I am the one sending you. And what does he say in verse 17? And he said to him, if now I found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it's you who speak with me. Many times we feel that way as well. Lord, give us a sign. Lord, if you're truly with us, if you're truly for us, if you truly love us, give us a sign that we might know, Lord, that you are with us. And what does Scripture say? Romans 8, verse 31, 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. And God says, that's a sign enough that I am with you and that I love you. That I am both willing and able to save and to use, to redeem and to sanctify. And this morning as I was busy praying, actually got this picture of us many times going to Jesus while he's hanging on the cross and saying, Lord, give us a sign to show us that you love us. Saying, isn't this enough? Isn't this enough? The cross of Christ, yet we still doubt. Yet we still want God to come and show us other things. No, Lord, but if everything else in my life isn't perfect, then I do not believe. Actually saying that the cross of Christ 
It's not sufficient. And God is saying, by this I've shown that I am both willing and both able. And many times we say no, no, but when it comes to the big things in life, it's then when we struggle and it's then when we ask God for a sign, it's then when we struggle to hear. But actually what we are saying when it comes to our own things, we struggle to hear and we seek for a sign. Because nobody in Scripture actively seeking the will of God does not find it. Everybody seeking the will of God, seeking God first to build His kingdom and focused on Him, always experience God's leading. But it's because many times we struggle to obey and to follow God and to be formed by Him in what He expects us to do that we struggle when it comes to our own things. And now all of a sudden when we need to move or a big decision comes, now the whole Sikuna must pray and fast with us. Because we do not know where God is leading us. And it's because we are not aware of the grace and the love of God. And we are unable to lay down our own lives. And the altar that's still erected, that we are still worshipping at, is the altar of self. Never been pulled down, never been broken down. Because we've never seen the work of Christ on the cross. Amen. It's a hard truth, but it's the truth nonetheless. This takes us to point number two. Through the cross of Christ, it is clear that God is with us and for us. God is both with us and for us. Willing to use us and able to use us. Willing to save us, able to save us. God is both willing and able. And again, something that we have to understand when it comes to about faith in God, both the willing and the able. Because we, we might say, no, we know God is able. We just struggle with the willingness sometimes. But many times we actually say that God is unable. You know how we say that? When we say, no, God will not use me for that. We are actually playing God. And we are limiting God. God is God. He can use whoever He wants for whatever He wants, whenever He wants. He's God. Whenever we say, no, God cannot use me for that, we are limiting God. We are saying that He's not really God, almighty, all-powerful. He can't use me for that, or He won't use me for that. It's limiting God. And when we ever have said that things, maybe if God reminds you of you saying something like that, maybe when it comes to missions or whatever the case might be, and we say, no, God calls other people for that, He won't use me for that. It's not just a mentality shift that needs to take place. It's actually repentance that needs to happen as well. Say, Lord, I'm surrendering again, fully anew, to say, wherever, whatever. But I also repent, Lord, of placing you in a box and saying that you are unable to eat straight lines with crooked sticks. Amen. I'm going to end off for us the well-known verse. And this is where it begins and this is where it will end. As we follow God. Matthew 28, verse 19 to 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's stand and pray together.